This morning's passage is James chapter 3. Probably by far the most famous chapter or place in the Bible on the on the sin of speech. However, uh, that sin pattern and that reality is present all through the scripture. And one of the real more focused moral issues of the New Testament is quarrels and fights and infighting within Christians. So this will be a really good chapter to study and look at. Um, I will also say that in the season of Lent, as we think about reflection and repentance, We have a lot of blind spots. We have things we don't realize we do and struggle with. Our our speech is a very, very good indicator of what's happening in our hearts. So this passage is a very helpful reminder during the season of Lent that we can just look at the words that are said in our life to really start to get an indication of what's happening inside. With that being said, um, it's a harsh chapter. So I'm going to do my best to read it in a Mr. Rogers voice. But uh, it's harsh. And the reason is, if you'll remember back in chapter 2, where James is talking about partiality, he's interacting with an imagined foe. We don't know what's going on, if there's a faction that disagrees with him. Remember when he says, you know, um, you say you have works, I say I have faith. And he kind of is interacting with this person or these imagined people. And the point is, as we've been saying, is a lot of his audience probably are cut to the core, but a lot of them still might not be. They might need to have more uh, convincing of their need for the Savior. A lot of religious people think they have it together. And so you'll notice when Jesus gets his harshest, it's with those who think they have everything together, the the Pharisees. And same with James. So uh, sometimes in our home, if there's two children arguing and a parent steps in, sometimes, I hate doing this in front of my children, this is not a particular moment, one of the children will agree, like, I, I, we were doing this. And the other one will still defend themselves, right? So the, fa- the gaze of the parent has to go to the one that still thinks they didn't do anything wrong. And the other child sort of, in a way, isn't being hollered at for the moment. We don't holler. But yet, both are learning from the language, okay? So if you are here and you go, man, man I need to grow in my speech, then this passage, you're the child, just kind of listen it's Jesus, it's his spirit, you're ready. But if you're here and you're like, I, I've got this together, like, I'm good. Okay, here comes James. Please read it with me. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by so strong of winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil. 
full of deadly poison. With it, with it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we praise you that you are a God who loves and delights to rescue and to heal. And after having just read this passage, I'm certain many of us feel cuts to the core from even words said in the last 24 hours. So I pray, Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes to how you will heal us and teach us to grow based on your mercy. Amen. James is not a very long letter, and it really has a lot of thematic working. Uh, so we, I keep referencing previous uh, portions to kind of understand the present passage we're in. And this morning we'll even look a little bit at chapter 4. But one of the things that is a high point of James is when he says, don't be just a hearer of the word, be a doer. And I, when I preached through that, I, may, I mentioned that can seem intense. So let me kind of make sure, unpack that as we look at the tongue. Uh, don't be a hearer only is impossible. You can't just hear the word. He's sort of setting up an absurdity. And remember, he says like a mirror, you can't look at a mirror, see a flaw and not adjust it. That's absurd. The point is, when you actually are engaged with the word, the implanted word, the spirit who dwells in you, uh, it leads to, and the, and the term doing is another term is making. We are actually co-creators with God in carrying out his artistic actions on planet earth, redeeming this world. That's what Christians are called to do. At the end of chapter 1, James sets up the two primary ways we engage that action, that, that work of redemption, that artistry. One is our actions, and so that's what we've been talking about. He talks about caring for the widows and the orphans in their affliction, not showing partiality, uh, not saying be warm and well-fed to somebody while not actually doing anything about it. And now he's turning his attention to the second thing he mentioned in chapter 1, which is the speech, our tongues, our language. And what I, I love about that word, poet, poetes, about doing, is it really is an artistry. It's making, it's poetry, it's we're coming along with the spirit in us and we're carrying on that work with our words. So the question before us is, are our words healing people? Are we healing broken areas? If you've ever seen artwork in a book, it's beautiful. And then if you see it in, in real life at a museum, a gallery, uh, it looks different. It's a different size than you realize. The colors are more vibrant. And if you get close, you begin to see the brush strokes. You feel connected to the artist. And our words are like those brush strokes. They matter. I think we sometimes think, oh, it doesn't really matter what we say. They matter. And so uh, we are joining in uh, with our Heavenly Father's longing to bring shalom, to bring healing to the world through his redemption. As, his, as Christians, our job is to bring healing with our words. So two main points, the power of our words, healing will come through the power, understanding the power of our words, and healing will come by understanding the source of our words. So the power of our words. Um, 
We live in an interesting time where, uh, on one hand, there's more words than ever, it seems like, with social media and just all the technology. And words can really lose the power, it seems. They can just be so much words that it's hard to pay attention. And yet, one little tweet, one little misstep can, like, ruin a career, ruin a person's life. So we have this kind of interesting bind in our culture But I think we all can affirm the fact that words have power, and it's in our passage. James very illustratively gives these examples. One is a horse. He says, and you know, think about if you, I don't ride a lot of horses, but they're powerful and and fast, and their entire bodies are steered by this little thing, a bit in their mouth. And so is the tongue, a small thing that can steer such powerful things. The second is a ship. A ship is steered by a small rudder. So James is saying words have power. And the two places that we're going to look at their power of words are power over other people and the power over ourselves. So uh, within point number one, the power of our words, let's talk about the power over other people. Um, So much of your life, maybe even in ways you don't realize, and has been shaped by words. Every physical abuse that has ever happened always starts in the element of words. Maybe it's grooming or other forms. But not only that, words can be used in your growing up in ways you don't even realize. And yet they can lead to who, how you even view yourself. Um, a lot of people, a lot of parents, a lot of outside voices are crafting and they're curating your identity through words. How? Well, one example is accusations and curses. And for, in verse 9, James says, we bless with, the Lord, with our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people. Cursing. Making statements about somebody that actually has power behind it to affect them. Now, we don't believe in, like, curses like, a, you know, a witch can curse you or something weird. But rather, we, as the recipient of a word, can change the course of our lives. So going back to that ship and that horse, Words coming at us can steer how we even live our lives. Here's an example. There's, there's, there's two things we do when we get an accusation. We make vow or we make agreements. So I'm going to explain that for two, two seconds. Um, if someone says to you, you'll never amount to anything. Is that my, is that my device? Whew, okay, sorry. I'm always worried I'm going to have like a device going off. Um, if someone says he will never or she will never amount to anything, and you hear that, you hear that that's, a, that's a, an accusation that can curse you. It can become true in some sense. And here are your two ways. If you hear it and you don't like it, you vow. Oh, yeah? I'll show them. And then you enter every contest. You make sure you're in honor society. You, you work on your resume. Like everything is perfect. You'll, you'll show that person, right? You're vowing to not let that be true. And therefore, the course of your life often can be shifted by these words or agreements. Sometimes we hear language like, you'll never amount to anything, and we just start to adopt that message. I guess I'm never going to really amount to anything. And so you agree with it, and pretty soon you have things about how you view yourself are now in alignment with that accusation. Does that make sense? So words have those kinds of powers, and those are the words of power uh, that you receive to your face. When you think about how words have power over other people, it, it can be I'm saying words to you and I'm shaping your life. Other forms of 
negative words to have power over people would be um, passive aggressiveness or aggressive aggressiveness. So these are just ways that power, words can shape an individual to their face. But words also have power away from a person. And I think the most obvious one is gossip or slander. We're going to talk more about it, and I'll define it more later, but just gossip is talking about a person. This is a really hard one. I've had conversations. I, I've struggled. How do you determine when it's okay to talk about a person, right? I mean, as a pastor and in ministry, that can be harder. As a parent, if my wife and I speak of one of our children and they're not present, are we gossiping? It's, it's challenging. So here's the test. Uh, anybody here have a ring app at their house? Does that, do you know what that is, the ring doorbell? I have one of those, and when I first got it, I'd be just shocked at how often it just, someone drove by and it showed me a video, so I had to work on the sensitivity. Um, imagine an app like that that just buzzes you every time you say a name. It, it's, I'm sorry, every time someone else says your name. So you're just going about your life, and, it being, and all of a sudden, you're watching that conversation about you. So now, put yourself in the speaker's minds. If I knew when I said your name, it would ding and you would have access to my conversation, really quickly I would have a very good definition of gossip. Like I'd be like, uh, they're amazing and I really like them. So just be thinking about gossip as any use of words about a person when they're not there that you would not want them to hear. Words have power over other people. Um, I could talk a lot more about that, but I don't have time. Because words also have power over ourselves. That means what I'm saying there is when I say my words, it affects me. So often we think it just affects other people negatively or positively, but it affects me as well. In fact, uh, I would go so far as to say when I gossip or slander, though that might seem to scratch an itch, it will leave me more broken. Because it didn't quite heal me like I had hoped it would. So I now am less than I was before. But also, words can stain. In, in, in verse 6, James says, The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting the, the, the fire of our entire course of life. So my words amongst my body and my person can actually shape our lives and my life. Um, one of the ways I've sort of observed this, and I don't know if this has ever been proven or agreed upon by my family members, but another children example. Uh, when, a, when a child doesn't want to eat something, what an adult will say is, I don't think I want that right now. What does a child say? I hate it. I hate mac and cheese. Really? You just ate it yesterday. Well, I hate it today, you know. And I'm always like fearful because as a parent, any food item a child doesn't eat just kind of really... Messes with everything, right? So, no, 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 you don't hate it. You just don't want it right now, right? You're trying to shepherd the fact. Because the truth is, when I say I hate something, something in me says, yeah, that sounds right. It doesn't. It, it sort of comport, it com come on, throw out the word there. It confirms it. Okay, we'll go with that one. Confirms. Thank you. I think that's what you said through the mask. I couldn't. Words have power over us. Affirmations. Every psychologist will tell you, affirmations. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. It's Saturday Night Live for you young people. That's a show that airs on Saturday night. Um, the problem with affirmations, and I love them, I think they're important in a, in a sense, is 
they sort of ring untrue. <laughs> am I really as amazing as this author is telling me to say I am? My dad used to say when we, he would take me golfing, like, hey, over this putt, just tell yourself you're the greatest putter on the planet. Like, I mean, do I believe that? I'm, I'm lying to myself. So in the Bible, it does it a little differently. The Bible says praise. Because when I praise with my mouth, it's true. When I praise God, all of a sudden, I'm actually saying correct words about God in a way that are true, and it transforms my heart, my life, my being. And it draws me in with the very words. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. And then the psalmist goes on to say, bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not his benefits. He forgave all of my iniquity. He heals my diseases. He redeems my life from the pit. That's about me, like affirmations are. But it's about me being caught up in who I am in God. So when you praise God, your words that have power are actually having the power of healing you in that moment. And then I want to add that sometimes we're, we're, there might be this fear of like, well, I don't want to just say only positive things. I don't want to just say negative things. So how do I use my words which have the power to transform me and have both in tandem? And this week I was, uh, Emily has really helped me, I think, with the verse from Habakkuk 3. It's become kind of a life verse for Emily, and so this week we started talking about it, because I thought it's a perfect example of how praise and lament work together. In Habakkuk 3, um, Habakkuk says, though, so he's going to say some negatives, he's going to grieve, he's going to lament, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the folds. And there will be no herd. That's lament. He's not saying, I don't care about that stuff. It's sort of this recognition of the reality of the darkness and of pain that's happening. And then he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Uh, this week we had water come into the kitchen and panic ensued. And I will just give you the end of the story. Things are fine. Thanks for Some of you checked on us and... Uh, it's all good, but in the moment, I think I brought up Habakkuk 3, and then was like, I'm not ready for that right now. And she was right, but the point, because our bodies in the moment of, of a disaster, we're going to struggle and wrestle of when to praise and when to lament. But what's beautiful is this, and you think about James, he says in the very beginning, when trials come, count it joyful. Why? Because the truth is still there, even if you don't feel it. And wisdom, what we're praying for from James 1, is to begin to apply that truth that we claim, Habakkuk 3, you know, in a situation where right now I'm like, I don't want to hear Habakkuk 3. But I'll begin to say it. Though the kitchen is filled with a foot of water, though the pipes are bursting all around me. If you start to lament, honestly, yet, I will rejoice in the Lord and in my salvation his salvation is far greater than airing out some water and having a pipe mended, right? It's full, glorious rescue. Our words have power. Where I want to spend the last part of our, of our time is the source. Because healing does begin with understanding the power and using our words correctly. But, but full healing will come when we understand that the source of our words are from our heart. 
One of the things the Bible teaches over and over, unlike so much self-help literature and unfortunately a lot of ministries want to act like the way you change and improve is just by putting things outwardly in order and then it will somehow work inwardly. And, and that's not quite what the Bible teaches at all. Uh, Jesus famously, you know, tells Pharisees who have outwardly everything in line, what does he call them? You are whitewashed tombs. You have this death that you're just blanketing over with whitewash. God is after our heart, but the better news, or not the better news, the important understanding is by giving him our heart, organically, fruit will grow. It's a change of the source. Where do we see that in our passage? The second half of this portion with, with James is when he begins to give these examples of how words can reveal what's going on in the heart. He starts um, in verse 11. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, um, opening both fresh and salt water? So he uses the, the image of a spring. And then he uses two other images, a fig tree and a grapevine. He says, can a fig tree produce olives? Can a grapevine produce figs? Of course, the answer is no. So what James is teaching is the problem when the fruit isn't out there or when the water is salty isn't that you start fixing things to it in real time. It's the source is flawed. That's the problem. Now, if everyone in this room agrees we struggle with our words, that's bad news. We all have that. The question is, do we have a good source as well? Right? So do we have the Holy Spirit as well? Do we have this imagery of, of water? Do we have the pure source as well? Yes, as Christians in a fallen world who are not yet glorified, we carry around the carcass of the old man. That is the old self. And often we live out of that old self. But the question before you is, have you received Christ, which means his spirit dwells in you? And how would that look right now? Are you feeling any conviction? If you feel a little convicted or a lot convicted, great news. That's a sign that the spirit might be at work. If you're sitting here going, I don't, this is not important, I don't care about my words. That's who James is going after. That's bad news. So my prayer for you and I is that our heart actually is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And the good news is if so, then our words begin to reveal places where we're not living from that Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And, and James actually picks up on that in chapter 4. But, in, you know, when you get a letter, you read the whole thing. So I'm going to have to tell you a little bit about chapter 4. And he asks this question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Right? He doesn't say you're not using the right techniques. Maybe if you would answer their statement with a question and make sure you insert their name so they know you care about them. And, and uh, you know, He says, no, no, no. It's, that, it's this. You have these passions that are at war inside of you. You do not have something and so you murder. What's he saying? The heart is the problem. And the words are a tracer chemical to the problem. So here's the good news of healing your words. I've got great news for you. If you want to know during Lent or in general as a believer, where is my sin? Where am I not believing the gospel? How am I not resting in Christ? Look at your words. Who are you in a fight with? Who are you quarreling with? Um, let me give an example. Uh, you say, I don't like Bob. Is there a Bob in the room? 
I'm always trying to find that name, that go-to name. What was the name? <laughs> one time I, my go-to name used to be Bob Jones. And one day I'm teaching a group, Bob Jones. And he's like, what? I'm like, oh, sorry, Bob. I forgot it. you're Bob Jones. Uh, so I'm going to just stick with Bob for now. And you just say to your, you say casually, Bob walks by. I don't like Bob. And I just want to say that's not okay. Like the Bible, there's nowhere in Scripture where Jesus says, it is fine to not like a person. So we know that. That's the law. It tells me I can't do that. But what I want to invite you to do is start to process what is it about Bob that I don't like. Right? And, and here are some possibilities. Bob didn't invite you to his birthday party. Hmm? So I'm kind of mad. I went to Facebook. I'm just doing my thing. And there's a party. And I wasn't invited. I was snubbed by Bob. Or maybe Bob critiqued my outfit last week, and it really hurt my feelings. Those are legitimate hurt feelings, lament. But here's what tends to happen for many of us who aren't living out of the spirit. Those feelings make us feel less. We feel lower, right? And what really happens, if you really want to be honest in your heart, is you are super angry about what Bob did. Because you start to ask yourself, I'm talking at deep, deep levels where James goes in chapter 4. What's happening underneath this is you're starting to ask, maybe I am am not lovable. Maybe I'm not someone that people want at parties. And and what we do, like the dog, I used an illustration a few weeks ago of the dog hearing the noise. High-pitched ring like you can kind of hear if you pay attention to it. And finding me and then wanting to kill me. And I'm just going, ah, and it's coming at me, and the owner, like, has to wrestle the dog away. Sometimes a person comes along, does something. We hear a noise in our soul that says, you're not lovable. And we look at that person and go, it's that person. I hate Bob. Because when I see Bob, I'm reminded that I might be less. Right? And what James goes on to say is, you, listen to James. Here's my, our friend James. You adulterous people. Why? Because Bob cannot give you the worship you need. If Bob invited you to every party Bob threw and complimented every blouse you wore, he cannot fix the brokenness in your soul. Jesus can. And so James goes on to say, the spirit whom God placed in your soul is jealous over you. He loves you. And one day, someday, when the veil is removed, when you can see God in glory, you're not going to go, that's great, but how does Bob feel about me? You're just not going to say that. You probably won't remember Bob at that moment. But yet you will be praising a God who looks at you and says, not only do I love you, I made you. I knitted you together. When you left me in rebellion, I pursued you. And I'm going to bring you home to glory. That's who we worship. And when we get our eyes fixed on him, all of a sudden, all these other issues go away. And our words can reveal the ways we're doing that. Types of words to process together. I've used gossip and slander. Sarcasm. Uh, I taught this, some of this topic at an RUF thing. And I talked about sarcasm. That's one of my historical struggles. Uh, humor. I like humor. I'm quick-witted. But then... The shadow of that could be sarcasm. So are you aware of your patterns? Um, self-deprecation. Um, Emily made a comment about something, you know, uh, something, you know, you say something about yourself, 
And Bonnie goes, Mom, that's gossip about yourself. I love that. Uh, she was trying to encourage her mom, but yeah, don't gossip about you. You can't do that either. Uh, boasting, I think that's a big one. I think adults, we all learn subtle ways, you know, the humble brag, you know, my boat isn't quite ready for the lake. You know, we, we have ways of telling everybody about our life, the humble brag. Other people just flat out boast, <laughs> you know, I'm awesome at that. Whoa, I didn't know we could do that still. I thought that was third grade. Uh, complaining is a big one. Are you a complainer? I am. I mean, I have to be honest. Someone says, how are you? I feel ambivalence. If I say, great, am I lying? But if I just say how bad I'm doing, am I just being a downer? So I struggle. The truth is both and, Habakkuk, though the kitchen is flooded, yet, right? So uh, don't be a complainer, or at least use that to see what's going on in your heart. Passive aggressive. Um, I don't know that I need to define that, but don't be that. Uh, aggressive, aggressive. Don't be that either. That's even worse maybe. Maybe not. Another one that's subtle, but a lot of parents, we struggle with this, naming, labeling. They're the smart one. They're the funny one. They're this, they're that. They're this, they're that. It, it can shape people. These are the way our words are being used. And as you begin to identify your words, you'll find this tracer chemical back to why you're doing it. Why is it so safe to label? It's safe. I felt like my mom did that. Mom, if you're listening, I love you. You did a great job. But when you get a label, I think you can find, like, that's how I know kind of how to deal with this person. And yet God's made that person in the image of himself. And I have no idea as a parent or a friend or a loved one or a teacher what he's going to do with that person. Don't label. Okay? So those, that's the words. Now, just to kind of wrap up, this is our last thought um, if you're doing an outline, just so you know I have an outline, we're in point two, the source of our words. Subpoint one is that words reveal our heart. And subpoint two is now we need to recognize we need to live out of that heart. Okay, we have this new source. And I just want to remind you of a few things from not only James from other places, but James, as I've already mentioned, says you have the spirit dwelling in you. Uh, in chapter 1, he says you have the implanted word. So the spirit of Christ dwells in you. And now all the benefits of Christ are yours. And what that means for Christians is we, our true nature is not the old man. Our true nature, like Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been co-crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live how? By faith. In the Son of God. What that means is when Bob walks by and I'm tempted to have faith in me and how Bob made me feel, I go, wait a minute. That's not the real me. The real me is that Christ dwells in me. And he says, I am a new creation and I'm made in his image and I have glory. You see what's going on. The, the, we're living, the words help us to see our hearts. And I want to just draw your attention now to our passage as we start to get closer to our closing. Just that, that imagery he uses of water. He kind of starts it and stops with it. In verse 11, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? And then um, at the end of that little, he gives the two examples of the fig tree and the grapevine. And then he says, neither can salt pond yield fresh water. The, the hope there is this. Uh, if you have the spirit, you have a source of fresh water. 
and my mind just goes to John 4 and John 7. And John 4, you have the woman at the well who is there at the heat of the day. And Jesus says, I can offer you living water. I am living water. And, and that would have changed, that did change her life. It radically altered the rest of her life and her time and eternity. And then in chapter 7, Jesus has sort of in a really clandestine way come to Jerusalem for a feast. He told everybody, he didn't tell anybody he was going to be there, but he's there. Uh, of course, there's people always trying to capture him. The Bible's really awesome if you're not reading it, okay? It's really good. So much stuff happening. But he's there, and he just stands up during the feast and says, if anyone is thirsty, come to me. And John says that he's referring now. He's the source of living. I am the living water, and he has put his spirit in you, alive and living. And so we have this new heart from whence comes everything we do, that's positive, but when we sin and choose other things, that's coming from this deadened salt water source that doesn't produce life. All it does is kill and destroy. In fact, James teaches uh, it comes from hell. Like, when, you know, when Peter, the, the, uh, when Peter says to Jesus, you'll never die, Jesus doesn't say, hey, that's not quite in line with what the prophets have taught. He says, get behind me, Satan. So when I use negative speech, I am a mouthpiece of Satan. Next week, Wilson will cover the next few verses, but he even says it's demonic. It's a big deal. On the other hand, the beauty, if you're a Christian, is though I have that pattern, I am forgiven. Past, present, and future, legally forgiven. Now the healing comes when I live as one who is forgiven by faith. And how do I do that? I go back to Christ through this process. And here's what I want to leave you with as an application there's going to be a few things. Number one, I'm, I'm, please do this. Watch your words this week, even today. And you know yourselves well enough when you heard that list I already gave you. You probably know how to even process a few of the patterns you have. So begin to pay attention to the repeated patterns. Is it complaining? Is it sarcasm? What is it? And as you begin to um, identify those things, Understand your power to do this is Christ, right? James says you have this mirror, Jesus, and he loves to show you. The Holy Spirit's glad to show you these things you're doing. And cheer up. It's worse than you know. You have worse things than you, you even realize. But you're more loved than you ever will know. And, and you can actually have the freedom to look at these words. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to connect the dots. Solve for X. I'm not a math person. I think that's algebra. Um, it means go, okay, what James is teaching in chapter 4, we'll get to in a few weeks, is this. When I use my speech like this, Jesus is not saying, stop it. Just stop it. He's saying, why are you doing that? Are you curious about what you're missing? What desire you have? that you don't feel is being met by Bob, and so you're talking about Bob, or you're passively, aggressively telling Bob he should have invited you to his party. Heard you had a party. Go deeper. Holy Spirit, show me how I'm being an adulterer towards you by going toward other gods, rather than bringing my hurt to you and to the cross. And you'll begin to have healing in your speech. You'll begin by knowing where you are hurt and how Jesus can heal you. 
you'll, next, you'll, you'll begin to develop a renewed mind, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Your body is coming as a living sacrifice, and your mind is being renewed, and you'll notice progressively that that pattern is getting better and better. And let me also say, pay attention to, are you praising? Are you complimenting? Are you thankful? Like the positive sides of speech. Are you lifting up people in their absence? Are you defending people? So pray that the Spirit will come in and change your heart through this process. Let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we all have speech that is prone to harm. And Lord, what you've taught us this morning is that when we use it that way, we're really trying to protect our fragile um, selves because we're not trusting in you. Lord, show us how to rest in you. Show us how to be vigilant in throwing our entire being at your feet at the cross. Lord, teach us to use our speech as a tool. In James 4, you'll say that um, when we resist the devil, he will flee. When we draw near to you, you will come. I pray our words might be one of the ways that happens, that we can resist him by not engaging in sinful speech and draw near to you by examining our deeper needs and asking you to be the one that provides everything we need on a deep level. In your name we pray.